following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If you haven't made any mention of this, I'll do it now. Our condolences to all of you Denver fans. Very sorry. I really, John Middlebrook, where are you at, John? There you're over there. And uh, Jared and I all last Sunday were talking, and I just was saying it's going to be a blowout. For Denver. I thought Denver was going to do the blowing out, and uh, that didn't work out. Do we have any Seattle fans in here? None? I didn't think so. Recent Seattle fans? Anyone prior to last Sunday who was a Seattle fan? No? Okay. I didn't think so. I couldn't think of anybody. I was going to text them and congratulate them, but I had nothing to do, so I just sent condolences. So anyway, there are my public condolences. You're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 23 to 28, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and I will alert you that we're having issues with the clicker, so if it starts going crazy behind me, that's why, just so you know. Uh, Verse 23, Mark writes this, that one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, I have been reminded so many times, I feel like, over the past two or three weeks, particularly in our study of Mark, how everything comes back to you. It's so tempting for us to want to wander in our hearts, wander in our minds, and focus on other details and things and events and ideas, whether those things are good or bad, it doesn't really matter. In the end, all of those wanderings away from you take us away from what this gospel has been written for, to draw us back to you, to show us you, to reveal Jesus Christ. And even today, Lord, as we study this passage, that is the the overriding theme that there are so many things that would pull us away. Lord, please protect us. Please forgive us for all the many ways we have wandered from you in our hearts and minds and actions. And so today, Lord, as we study, even though it's kind of a different study a little bit today, as we study, I pray, Father, that that idea will be what we walk away with. That this is about you. It's about our hearts being focused solely on you. And if it's not about that, then this is all for nothing. And so, Lord, please guide us this morning. Please meet with us this morning. Please make your word clear to us this morning. Help us to understand you better through this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, being from the South, it probably goes without saying that I really like grits, okay? Um, I'm not referring to girls raised in the South. If you've seen that bumper sticker, all right, that's... Uh, oh, never mind, I won't go there. Uh, I used to like grits in that way, but then I found northern girls much better. Uh, no, I'm talking about a warm breakfast dish that is made up of water and finely ground corn, and I like to add a little salt and pepper and butter to it, and you make it, and it's, oh, 
oh, so delicious. That's what I remember growing up. I still love it to this day. And in my mind, that is part of a complete breakfast. I mean, sure, I can have a plate of just sausage and eggs, and I will enjoy that. It's good. But if you add grits to the mix, oh, it's even better. It's kind of like, like having just a, a slice of cake. That's good. But if you add ice cream to it, that's better. Kind of, It's the same way for me with grits. Grits make everything better. Jamie, Jamie, though, is different than me in this. She doesn't really like grits that much. See, she's from Chicago, and where she's from, they had a very strange breakfast dish that they enjoyed up there. I don't know if it's just a Chicago thing or not, but it wasn't really familiar to me. She calls it oatmeal. Are you familiar with oatmeal? See, and, and don't get me wrong here, I, I like oats a lot. It's just that I'm pretty sure that somewhere in the Old Testament, I'm not sure where, but somewhere in the Old Testament, God made it clear that he created oats to be used in cookies only. In fact, I would go so far as to assume that in the Garden of Eden, the oats were growing right next to the chocolate chip bushes. I assume chocolate chips come from a bush. You just like open up the pod and they all fall out. And, and he intended for them to be put together into the, one of the most delicious cookies of all time, right? Chocolate chip oatmeal cookies. Oh, those are good. Now some of you are hungry, just thinking about that. That's what I assumed that they were intended for, but no, she, she likes to take perfectly good oats that could have been used for cookies and likes to boil them in water and milk until they become this nasty mush that looks like something Dixie deposited on the carpet in the middle of the night. Don't sit there and do that because you know I'm right. That is what they look like. And even though she will deny this, she recognizes how disgusting they taste deep down, because after she has made them, she then attempts to cover up the flavor of the grits by adding in all kinds of things. So she takes apples and she chops them up, or maybe she'll take cranberries or blueberries or some fruit, and then she likes to chop up some pecans and put on it, and then she puts in cinnamon and nutmeg and a dash of salt and a little bit of sugar, and it's like the whole pantry is marching its way into this bowl, like salsa and mayonnaise, what else is going in there, in an attempt to try to make this stuff edible. And I'm on the side thinking, why? Why, if you have to add this many ingredients to something to make it good, why eat it in the first place? But, but she likes it, and that's fine. I'm thinking, save the oats. Let's make cookies later. But no, no, she wants to use it now. And so for both of us then, our breakfast choices reflect a little bit of the culture in which we, we grew up. Being from the South, I honestly, honestly, not trying to be funny, nothing. I honestly cannot remember ever seeing anyone eat oatmeal until I went to college. I'm not sure I was ever offered oatmeal. I don't remember ever seeing it in a restaurant or on a menu, but grits were everywhere present. Jamie, on the other hand, growing up in Chicago, had never seen grits. I don't think, I asked her this morning, I don't think she'd even heard of grits until her college years and she visited down south and somebody offered them to her and or something like that and so she had them then she doesn't like grits i don't like oatmeal but we we get along just fine and other than that we have no other problems in marriage correct (laughs) not after this all right (laughs) grits are clearly a southern thing but but to be honest they're a little more than that i think i think that grits have in some way shape or form become almost a a cultural identity marker of being of being Southern. I remember when I first went to college in Wisconsin, when people would learn that I was from North Carolina, one of the first questions, this is not a joke, one of the first questions they would ask me is, oh, so do you like grits? I mean, 
kind of question is that? It's just an assumption. I mean, it's a good assumption. I did like them, but it was just an assumption that because I was from a particular culture, one of the markers of being from that culture is that I would enjoy this particular dish. And, and it occurred to me this week as I was studying through Mark that every culture throughout all of time, modern, ancient, every culture has those kinds of markers, things that, that stand out, that make that culture unique, give it an identity apart from other cultures. And here in Mark 2, we're going to see this very issue on display here in this next controversy that's going to erupt between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. We've been working our way here through Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, verse 6. And so far, we've seen three out of four controversies that Jesus has to deal with here in this particular section. Controversy number one came in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and it had to do with the wrong understanding of the divinity of Jesus. Do you remember this scene? Jesus is teaching in a house, and some friends bring a paralytic guy and put before him. And when Jesus sees the paralyzed man, he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And, And the scribes, the Pharisees who are in the house, they hear this and they think, How can this man say this? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins, which is true. Only God can forgive sins. That they don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that he is divine. And because they don't have this understanding of Jesus, they are offended by what he says, and there's this confrontation that erupts. And so Jesus, in a way that only Jesus could do, answers that controversy by saying, okay, what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? So that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Son, get up, go home, take your bed with you. And the man gets up takes his bed, and goes home. And Jesus, in that act, proves that he is God, that he is divine, and therefore that he has authority to forgive sins. Controversy number two came in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, and it has to do with the wrong understanding of the lifestyle of Jesus. So Jesus, in this particular scene, calls this guy Levi, or his other name is what? Matthew, very good, to be his disciple, which doesn't sound so bad or so controversial until you read in the scene that this guy is a tax collector. And we talked about that a little bit, saying, you know, how how were tax collectors viewed in Jesus' day? And remember, they're the worst of the worst. I mean, you've got all this litany of sinners. You've got lepers, like down here, they're considered some of the worst. But underneath lepers is a tax collector. You'd rather have dinner with a leper than with a tax collector. And Jesus here calls one of these these traitors to both God and country to become his disciple. And they're incensed by this, but then to make it even worse, Jesus goes back to Levi's house and he attends a party where there are other tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees are like, how can you eat with these people? And again, Jesus responds as only Jesus could do. Don't you know, people who are well, they don't need a doctor. It's the people who are sick. And I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners. And in that response, he is condemning them because clearly they see themselves as righteous and they see these other people as sinners. And Jesus is like, if you're righteous, you don't need me. I came for sinners. I came to call them. And we learn there that, that Jesus' lifestyle is not going to match up to what the, what the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of Jesus' day expect. You know, he's, he's going to be doing things in a little different kind of way. Controversy number three came in chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, and had to do with the wrong understanding of the nature and purpose of Jesus' coming. 
in that particular scene, Jesus is approached by some people who have a very simple question. How come your disciples don't fast, but the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees do? I mean, clearly these guys are all very religious. They're doing things that the the religious people do. The Pharisees were known for fasting twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, as a, as a way of expressing their devotion to God. And, and the, John, the disciples of John the Baptist, they were doing the same, and yet here are the disciples of Jesus over here, and they're, they're, not, they're not fasting. How, what's going on? And Jesus says, they can't fast while I'm here. They can't fast while the bridegroom is with them. A day will come when I'll be gone, and then it's appropriate to fast. In in those comments there, he's drawing our attention to the fact that he is the fulfillment of every religious act. And while he's there, they can't fast. They can't mourn. They can't want God anymore because he is with them. And he uses a couple of of parabolic illustrations. Remember those two that we looked at? He says no one would take a, a piece of new fabric and Try to patch up an old garment. Why? Because when the fabric shrinks, it's going to tear the old garment and make it worse. They're, they're incompatible. You can't fix a, an old garment with something new. In a similar manner, you, could, you, never, you would never take wine, new wine, and pour it into an old wineskin. Why? Because when the wine expands, it's going to rupture the wineskin, and you're going to lose everything. In a similar way, then, Jesus is saying, I didn't, I didn't come to, to fix the old or to fit into the old. I came to replace it. Something new is here, something different, something better, something that's incompatible with the old, and he has come as that new thing. And now now we get to come to this final controversy that we're going to see here in this section. And unlike the previous three controversies, this one isn't found in just one scene. You know, in each of the other ones, we had one little scene. We learned a lesson from it. We moved to the next one, and then the next one. This one is going to occur in two different scenes and controversy number four has to do with a wrong understanding of the cultural identity of jesus okay the cultural identity of jesus now rather than trying to explain what that means to you up front and then trying to just show it in the text i want to explain to you what i mean by this by showing it to you in the text and i think i can do that simply by drawing your attention to the first two words of verse 23 which are one sabbath now as i have said to you in the past if there was ever going to be a day of the week on which jesus gets into more trouble than any other day of the week this is it okay it's, it's going to be on this day, the, the Sabbath day. And this is the first time in Mark where we're going to get to see Jesus in conflict with religious leaders and the, and the people around him about their differing understandings of the Sabbath. And just so you can know why I'm emphasizing that, back in chapter 1, we saw Jesus doing some things on the Sabbath. Do you remember that? Starting in verse 21 there, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue one day, and a guy with a demon all of a sudden stands up and says, I know who you are, you're the Holy One from God, and Jesus casts the demon out, and what's the response of the people? You remember? They're amazed. Never seen anything like that, but there's nothing bad that happens. Later, he goes home after the synagogue meeting, back to Simon's house, and his mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever, and he raises her up, heals her. Again, no controversy. Nothing happens. But by the time we move forward in time to whenever this scene occurs, and Mark doesn't tell us when this scene occurs, he just puts it out here, 
Something has clearly changed in the way that the religious leaders and the people are responding to Jesus. This is the first time in Mark where we'll get to see Jesus in trouble because of something that he has done on the Sabbath. And to understand why he's in trouble here, you have to have an understanding, at least in a very, very basic elementary way, of a Jewish understanding of the Sabbath in the first century. That's why I said that today's going to be a little bit different, because there's, there's no way to move forward either in this scene or the next scene until you have that understanding. It's going, to, it's, going to pick, it's going to flavor everything else we'll see, not just here, but for the whole rest of the gospel. And so what I'm going to do is just try to ask and answer a series of very basic questions about how did they understand the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath? What does it mean to them? Why, why will they react the way they do to Jesus here all throughout the gospel? And, and I've arranged them not in a particular order, just in the order that I thought would be the most helpful in stepping you through a, a train of thought so that when we get to the end of this, you will get the Sabbath. Okay, do you understand what we're doing this morning? We're just going to try to understand the Sabbath, and then when we're finished, I'll make a few Uh, observations, and and that's probably all we'll have time for today. Question number one, what is the Sabbath day? Well, to put it simply to you, the Sabbath day is God's prescribed day of rest for man. That's all it was, okay? God's prescribed day of rest for man. Everybody got that? You'll hear, understand it a little better in a moment. Number two, when is the Sabbath day? Well, again, simply put, the Sabbath day begins at sunset on Friday evening and ends on sunset Saturday evening. And and remember that this follows the Jewish pattern of understanding days. Their days don't begin and end at midnight like ours do. So this confuses us sometimes when we're reading in Scripture and you're hearing about something that happened one day and it happened the next day, but it sounds like the same day to us. That's because their days are considered a little bit different. Their days begin and end at sunset rather than at midnight. And so the Sabbath began at sunset on our Friday evening and ended at sunset on our Saturday evening. And before I move on, may I point out one seemingly then obvious detail that many people tend to forget? If you understand that last answer, then you understand that Sunday is not the Sabbath day, okay? I know it's been called that. I know that people have referred to it as the Christian Sabbath. I get all of that language and how it's been used, but but Sunday is not the Sabbath day, biblically speaking. It's the Lord's day. That's what the early church referred to it as, as the Lord's day. And if, if you just think back through the order of events in, in, in uh, the Gospels around the crucifixion, you'll get this point. Because remember, Jesus is crucified on a morning, a particular morning of a particular day, and he's hanging there, and it's starting to get later in the day, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders are worried that they won't be dead by sunset. Why? Because they want to make sure the bodies are down and in the tomb and everything's done before the Sabbath comes. And so they ask uh, Pilate if they can break their legs. And Pilate says, yes, they get to Jesus. He's already dead. And so they take him down. They bury him all before Friday at sunset. Next day is the Sabbath. Sabbath ends. The, the ladies don't go that evening, Saturday evening, to the, to the tomb. But they go the next morning 
Sunday morning. We refer to it as the Lord's Day and the tomb is empty. You, you can see even in the events of the crucifixion how they understood the Sabbath day, which means today is not that day. All right, got it? Good. Don't ever say that again. Third, where then did the Sabbath day come from? Well, that's a great question. You see the first mention of this day all the way back in Genesis 2. And I won't ask you to turn there, but I will put it up here. There at the end of God's creation of the world, Moses writes, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And the reason, of course, that God's resting is because he wants to watch football, right? Because he's tired, right? No, he's not, he's not resting in those senses. He has ceased his labor. He has finished his work. And he institutes that day as a memorial of the completion of his work. He sets it apart as being holy, set apart to him. And that day then is then codified into God's law in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, which reads like this, Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's in your uh, gates, within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And as you can see here, this day is to be Holy, which just means set apart unto God. This day was to belong to him. And the primary way that God asks that this setting apart be shown is through the avoidance of work on that day. Six days, God said, you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day, let's go. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on that day, you can't work. Your children can't work. Your, your servants can't work, your animals can't work, not even a guest who's visiting your house from out of town, from another country, from another religion altogether is allowed to work. No, this day, this day is different in the other six and that God has set it apart as a day of rest unto himself. But if you're thinking at this point, that forces you to ask a question, does it not? What is work? I mean, if this is the way that we set this day apart from all others by, by not working, then, then exactly what is work? I mean, it's clear as can be, don't work on the Sabbath. And yet, as you look through the rest of the Old Testament law, as you look through the rest of the Old Testament altogether, God never elaborates on what work is or, or exactly what that means. There are a few, maybe three or four examples in in the Old Testament where people are punished for working on the Sabbath, doing various things, but there's not like a list of prohibited or acceptable activities that you can turn to. And so what happened over time is that as people were studying through the law and they're looking at the commandments going, well, God says don't work and the the penalty for working on the Sabbath can be death. What, What constitutes work? What is it that I can and can't do? Someone needs to like figure this out and, and come up with an answer. And so over time, rabbis and, and religious leaders had come together and talked this thing through, and an entire subcode of Jewish law had been developed around this question of what is work. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, 
the rabbis and teachers had agreed on 39 prohibited activities that you could not do on the Sabbath. These included sowing, uh, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing stitches, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, tanning, scraping hide, marking hides, cutting hides to shape, writing two or more letters, erasing two or more letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing fire, kindling a fire, putting the finishing touch on an object, and transporting an object between domains. There are your 39 prohibited categories of work when Jesus is on the scene. And please note a couple of things about this list. And I know that's small type, but I wanted to get them all on one slide to kind of emphasize the nature of this. Please note a couple of things. First, none of these are scripturally based. Okay, You're not going to turn to a portion of Leviticus that says, do not sow or plow or reap or tear or trap or uh, erase two letters on the Sabbath. None of the, the, the law says do not work. And there's a big difference between do not work and do not carry something between domains. Okay, there's, is that clear? You get that? Second, recognize that as they were putting this list together, the larger purpose here is supposedly to help people not violate the Sabbath. The, the goal isn't merely just to, to try to be legalistic. I think that's how we approach this. You see this list and you're like, wow, what is wrong with these people? They must have really liked to to try to make people's lives difficult. No, I don't think that was the heart at all. I think the heart here was to try to help people obey what God had called them to do. And since God had never clarified exactly what was work and what wasn't work, the, the religious leaders over the years had felt the need to come in and help. I think the original purpose of all of this was to help. Unfortunately, that didn't play out too well. Third, These 39 things are intended merely to be broad categories of activities that were generally recognized by the religious leaders as being work in Jesus' day. The list was developed over time by by rabbis and teachers and lawyers. When I say lawyer, don't think lawyer in our sense. Think of lawyer and people who specialize in the Old Testament law. They sat around the room and they like talk things out. Well, what about this? And what happens if this occurs and that occurs and this is true and that's true? And, and, and they're debating over time and writing and, and arguing this thing out. And so it's, it's developed over time as they, de- uh, as they do this process. However, fourth, note that there's still a lot of potential wiggle room in the interpretation of these 39 activities, right? So what exactly is plowing? What exactly is tearing? And so what ended up happening over time is that these 39 activities were then expanded upon by a whole body of case law asking specific, detailed questions that would be answered by the religious leaders. And so, for example, these are actual examples. If your neighbor's house collapsed on the Sabbath, could you search to see if there were any survivors inside the house? And you say, well, obviously you could. 
but recognize that in order to search for a survivor, you're going to have to remove debris, which would fall clearly under the issue of demolishing. Clearly, right? It falls under the issue of demolishing. And so are you allowed to violate the demolishing clause in order to search for a, an injured person in a collapsed house? Well, thankfully, the answer to that question was yes. The rabbis agreed that you could, in fact, remove rubble to search for a survivor. However, let's talk about what might happen in these scenarios, because this is how detailed it was. If in the process of digging, the family whose house had collapsed walks up and you, you're all okay, there's no one in here, instantly you stop. From the moment you know everyone's safe, you stop whatever activity you were in the middle of. You can't help them any further. You can't help them retrieve anything out of the house. Everyone has to just quit. Because at this point now, the family's safe and the demolishing clause comes back into power. Or, or if in the middle of it, you find someone and they're injured, you can remove the rest of the rubble and pull them out. And if at this point, let's say they're injured, their arm is cut, but it's not, and they're not going to die, it's just, it's just a bad cut. Well, if there's no one else alive in the house, or you just, okay, you're done, and we'll stitch you tomorrow because sewing would be prohibited, and it's not life-threatening. So we can, we have to wait. Broken bones, by the way, would not be considered life-threatening in most cases, and people would just have to wait until the Sabbath was done to have those set. Um, however, if, you're, if your wound was life-threatening, well, then we can take steps to try to help you. Or if you've been digging through the house and all you find are dead bodies, you just leave them. You can't remove them. You can't do anything else until the Sabbath. Pa- you see how, like, scenarios paths, details, questions. This is the kind of, of case law that I'm, I'm talking about here where, where these are the questions that the rabbis are trying to answer. There's a prohibition here about transporting objects. Well, what kind of objects can you transport? Could you transport a spoon from here to there? This is not intended to be funny. These are actual questions. Could you transport a spoon to the table so you can eat? Can you, can you pick up your child? Some schools of thought said no, parents couldn't even pick up their children because of the transporting clause. Other schools of thought said, yes, you can. They don't all agree because they interpret things different. How far can you transport something? Is that too far? Is this too far? How many steps can I walk? And then are there loopholes? What if, is it okay to carry a spoon? Yeah, it's okay to carry a spoon. What if I put the spoon on a bale of hay that I need to take to the barn for the animals? Is that acceptable? It's page after page after page after page of these kinds of detailed questions and answers of people, these religious leaders trying to interpret all of this so that people can obey and and. You know, in the case, if, if the case law doesn't answer a question, you come to your rabbi and you're like, Rabbi, I don't know. Can I do this? And he's going to say, well, hmm, never heard that question before. Let me go check. And he's going to go back and he's going to meet up with the other rabbis. What do you think? He wants to do this. Well, Rabbi so-and-so over here said this. But Rabbi so-and-so over here said this. And Rabbi so-and-so said this. And so because of that, we're going to give you this answer. It's a never-ending process. Never-ending system broad agreement on these categories but there's disagreement on the applications of those categories and so sometimes in the gospels you'll see jesus doing something and one group saying you can't do that and the other group doesn't seem to have a problem with it this is what's going on throughout the gospel stories well you might be hearing this and thinking 
this is crazy. <laughs> Why would you ever live this way? How could you ever live this way? Well, I would just simply remind you that in their culture, if picking up your child on the Sabbath is considered to be a violation of the transporting clause, and if violating the transporting clause is a way of disobeying God's command against working, and if the punishment for that is death, you'd take it seriously too, wouldn't you? And so it was a big deal to them. They took it very, very seriously. And it's this view of the Sabbath that dominated the culture of Jesus' day. By, by the time of Jesus' day, the, the culture is more than just a religious thing. It's a cultural thing that they're all trying to work in and live in and operate in. And the Jews of Jesus' day were proud of this. Very proud of this, generally speaking. The strict observance of the Sabbath had become one of the two primary cultural identity markers of Judaism, circumcision being the other one. And so if you are a Jew, you take pride in the fact that you're not like the heathen Gentiles around you, that, that, that you observe circumcision, you observe the Sabbath. This is the way that you showed the world your Jewishness. You loved God. And people who love God, the one true God, they remember him by keeping this day holy, set apart as classified and expanded upon by the rabbis and the religious leaders. Let's keep that in mind too. But clearly those people know what's right, don't they? Clearly these people, they, they, they're the most holy people we know. They sit on Moses' seat, and if anyone can tell us what God wants us to do, it's, it's them, duh. And so, so this is the cultural environment to which Jesus is, is born. This is the default understanding of everyone else around him. It's the default understanding of his disciples. It's the default understanding of the Pharisees. And it's the default understanding of the people to whom he's ministering. You're going to find scenes in the gospel where Jesus is going to do some wonderful thing to bless people. And the crowd, just the crowd standing around him is like, oh, look, here's a rock. Let's throw it at him. Why? Because they have this understanding of the Sabbath so ingrained in their mind, not because he's actually violated God's commandments, but because he has violated their cultural understanding and application of God's commandment. And there's a big difference in those two things. And it's that difference, folks. It is that distinction that is at the very heart of this final controversy here in these two scenes in Mark chapter 2 and 3. Jesus here is not going to live up to the cultural expectations that are being placed upon him by the people and by the religious leaders of his day. He is going to live under a different set of cultural expectations, not the cultural culture of first century Judaism, but the culture of what God actually wanted them to do. And this is going to put him in conflict over and over and over again with the leaders. Now, good news. That's as far as we can go today. For time's sake, two words, one Sabbath, all right? That might be a record. But I wanted you to understand, at least in some basic general way, what it is that Jesus is up against. Why it is that they are reacting to he and his disciples walking through a grain field, just grabbing a couple of Handfuls of grain. Like we see that. And they're, the Pharisees are all up in arms. They're violating the Sabbath. You can't heal a man with a withered hand. You can't do this. And you can't. Do, why? This is why. All the stuff you saw. This 
This is why. And so we'll come back here next week and pick up and see what happens both on this Sabbath and on the next Sabbath and, and what Jesus' responses in each of those situations teach us about God himself. But, but lest I let you leave without challenging you or at least attempting to confront you with a little bit of truth this morning, can I point out one more thing here? Can I point out to you that American Christianity has operated under much of the same mindset for many, many, many years? You know, what did the Pharisees do? They took a command that was good, and they took it and they added boundaries and meaning to it that aren't necessarily inherent in the command. And then off of that, they extrapolated out interpretations and, and applications and judgments that, that are of their own particular opinion that suit them best, particularly when judging others. Does that at all sound familiar? And what do the people do in response to all this? They follow along. They look at their leaders and they just say, well, they're the leaders and, and whatever they tell us to do, we should do. Let's not really think about it or give any other thought to what's going on because clearly they know best. And so let's, let's just go along with their approach. Does that sound familiar too? See, the sad reality is, is that for many of us, we either are no different or we grew up in churches that are no different. The issue of the Sabbath laws were never about the hands and feet of God's people. This is Jesus' point. You'll see it more next week. The Sabbath laws were about the heart of God's people, ultimately. And so that's what Jesus is going to confront. You know, you ask the question, why didn't God define work? Could he have? Was that like a big oversight? Like, whoops, finished the Bible and forgot to put that in there. Daggone it. You know, did he, did he just miss something? No, he, he didn't miss anything. He didn't need to define it because ultimately, as Jesus is going to make perfectly clear, the real issue in the Sabbath laws, as in every other law, was about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you did that, you would fulfill every law perfectly, Sabbath or otherwise. It was never about the hands and the feet of God's people. It was about the heart of God's people. And by the time the conversation moved to the thousand regulations about what could and could not be done with your hands and feet, the battle was already lost. It was already lost. It was never supposed to be about that. But that's where things are when Jesus arrives on the scene. And so he confronts it over and over and over again. And for many of us, we have done the same thing. We've taken God's commands and taken God's truths and we've attempted to apply meaning and, and, and boundaries to them that we then have taken and extrapolated out interpretations and applications that we use to judge both ourselves and others, feeling that if somehow we, we keep all these things down here that we're, we're making God happy. But I would say to us that, folks, it's never been, never has it been about our hands and our feet. It was always first and foremost about our hearts. That that was what God wanted. Was our hearts from the very beginning that Jesus died to save us and to change our hearts so that we lived differently start to finish. Certainly, Christians have things that they should and should not do. I get that. I get that. I try to live that. I try to teach that. I, I understand that. But understand also that those things are only truly helpful when they are motivated out of a heart that has been changed by the gospel. 
when the gospel comes in and you recognize that God loved you enough to send his son to die for you, it is that truth, that grace shown to us, which Paul says later should teach us to say no to ungodliness. We don't say no to ungodliness just to mark off a checklist of yes and no's, do's and don'ts, good and bad's. We say no to ungodliness because God has shown us grace in Jesus Christ. That is the right motivation for all of those do's and don'ts and yes and no's that we live throughout our daily Christian life. And if the gospel is not the motivating factor in all of those decisions, we are no better than the Pharisees. I don't care what you say. I don't care what excuse you make. I don't even care how good your decisions about what you do and don't do are. In the end, if those decisions aren't based off of and motivated by the gospel, then they are all for nothing. But if the gospel is the motivating factor in our decisions about what we do and don't do, then our lives will be a living testament to how Jesus can truly make us free. And so next week, when we pick this back up, we'll see how Jesus responds to these things. And in his, in his responses, I think, we'll be challenged to consider our own hearts a little more carefully than we have before. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, I, I know this is a, a different kind of message, a different kind of Sunday, just trying to wrap our minds around a cultural and historical way of life that is foreign to us. But in it, Lord, I hope we see the very heart of the matter that you are going to be confronting here in these two scenes. The Pharisees wanted to live life as a list of do's and don'ts, thinking that somehow that could please you. That somehow that in and of itself would make them right in your eyes. And yet it didn't. They probably were the holiest people around by man's standards. They probably were the most righteous people in town by man's standards. But you looked at them and called them a brood of vipers. You called them tombs that look great on the outside, but inside are filled with dead men's bones. Oh God, please, Please protect us from being described in those ways. It is easy for us to try to make this Christian life about simply conforming to some exterior requirements, things we do and things we don't do because we're Christian. And yet that is missing the very point of the law, of every command that you ever gave. It is missing the point of the gospel that ultimately all of those external things must be motivated by your grace. And so God, please remind us of this. Please confront us with this anywhere that we are living falsely, for good or bad. Show us, Lord, even this week as we have a break now between this and our next Sunday as we go back into your word and see how you respond Lord, confront us this week with, with specific areas that we're not motivated by the gospel in, just by some outward conformity that makes us feel good and gives us the ability to judge others. It's We are no different, no better than these people. Forgive us even for looking down on them. Lord, ultimately, 
we want to be like you. We say it all the time, and I know eventually it doesn't seem to have the same impact that it did when we first started talking about it, but Lord, this is an area where this can be very clear. And so we come and we ask for your spirit to do what we cannot. Divide our hearts, reveal it, open it up, fillet it, Lord, so that we can see the sinfulness that is resident in us and change us, Lord, by your grace so that we can be more and more like you in the days ahead. And so, Lord, I thank you for not coming and trying to fit into the mold of religion. We're not just coming in and trying to live under the system that had been imposed by, by the religious leaders. You came and you busted it wide open. You came and showed that you were here to, to lead us in a different path altogether. And so, Lord, thank you for coming and thank you for leading us on that path. May we be faithful servants and disciples of you along that path. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.